Let's open our Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We want to talk about communing with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want you to bear in mind our opening passage from Exodus. 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now let's go over to chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. Reading where it says in verse 23, I've received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he comes. Communing with God. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, it's our privilege to break the bread of life. For a few moments, as we look into your word, we want you to speak to each one of us. We're so grateful that you opened our eyes again. We know, as the scripture says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. We honor you in Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen. The children of Israel had been in Egypt for quite some time, and as the Bible teaches, a Pharaoh came onto the scene that didn't recognize Joseph, didn't care anything about the heritage of Israel. But... Scripture made it very plain that children of Israel began to cry out to God, moaning, wailing, and tears. The taskmasters were ruthless. They weren't receiving the materials they needed for their building projects. Even though they cried out to God, God heard their prayers. And God made it possible for one baby amongst hundreds of other babies be delivered and spared a horrible death that so many of them had to deal with in that Nile River. But this man Moses, of course, was raised up by God to become a savior for the children of Israel. He was a shepherd, and the Lord used him to bring Israel out of Egypt, as the Bible teaches, with a mighty outstretched arm. Many miracles. Many signs and wonders God did for the Israelites. But on that final evening that they were there, they were told by God, every house is to find some lamb. Take the blood from that lamb and place it on either side of the doorpost 
on the upper part over the door where they enter. It says that everybody, once the blood is applied, you stay inside. Don't step out doors at all. The Lord said the destroyer who's going to pass through is not going to enter into any domain where the blood has been applied. It's amazing to think that the blood of a lamb could provide that kind of protection from an angel that was passing through bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. That morning, wherever the blood wasn't applied, there wasn't anybody or there wasn't a home that wasn't wailing, screaming, and crying. Death seemed to be everywhere. Simply because the blood had not been applied to those homes either. Now, the scripture says that when your children ask you about this particular event, you are to tell them the meaning of this story by telling them of the deliverance and of the blood that was shed. Think of it. An innocent lamb that had done no wrong, a lamb that was guilty of nothing at all, had to be sacrificed for every household. There was a lot of bloodshed during that particular period. There's a lot of blood applied to those doorposts. And God made sure that the children of Israel during Moses' time offered sacrifices in the morning and the evening until Christ came. I've never tried to take any kind of account of how many animals would have been sacrificed during that 1,500-year period, but there had to be many. Think of the blood. Think of the priests that handled the blood. The ones that were assigned to the tabernacle who did this because they were part of the Levite tribe or part of the the tribe that was involved with going up there during their particular assignment. They went up there, they handled blood, they smelt blood, they smelt like blood. When they were done with their particular time period up there, they went back home. They still had the stench of blood in their nostrils. He still had it upon their hands. I wouldn't doubt if they dreamt about it. Nevertheless, this went on until John the Baptist one day saw his cousin coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That meant that at the time that Jesus was approaching John and sacrifices were still in the process of being offered in the temple, John was making it very plain that those sacrifices are of no value no more because Christ has come. The anointed one has appeared on the scene. Now, this is the one that walked on water and healed the sick and took the little kids up in his arms and blessed them. This is the one that lived such a holy and righteous life that he never needed to say, I'm sorry to anyone. This is the one that when he exhibited anger, as it declares in the Gospel of Mark, that it was a righteous indignation. It's a man just like you, human just like us. He knew what it was to weep. He cried over Jerusalem. He knew what it was to be hungry. He was hungry after a 40-day fast. He knew what it was to be thirsty. But this is the one that they brutally placed upon the cross and then put him in that sepulcher. And then the power of God raised him up on the third day. But before he got to Calvary, he had to spend time with those disciples. Scripture tells us that he sat down with all of them, including Judas. 
said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. How would you have liked to have been in the presence of Jesus and communed with God and had a, a betrayer or a traitor like Judas in your midst? Here was a man that most pastors try to pray out of a church. Here's the kind of a gentleman that most fathers don't want in their home. Certainly the kind of a young man that no one wants their, their daughter to marry. I mean, Judas, of course, his name is very much like Jezebel has gone down in infamy. Who names their child Judas today with some kind of signification that it's pointing to the one that betrayed Christ? But Paul tells us Jesus became our Passover. So the day that you and I stepped out of sin and then permitted God the Holy Ghost to apply the blood of Jesus to the doorposts of our hearts. Scripture made it very plain that judgment having come to all, or is going to come to all, we know that it's appointed unto men once to die, but then the judgment. But the one that has the blood applied to their heart has no reason to be afraid. There's some people afraid to die. But I'm telling you, when you put your head down on the pillow today, if you know Christ is your Savior, you draw your last breath. The next one you do inhale is going to be in the presence of the king, because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Can you say amen? There's no doubt about it. So Christ has become our Passover We understand that the judgment that could have come to us, that should come to us, will not come to us because we are abiding in the house. That's where the blood has been applied. We understand that being in Christ spares us and delivers us. So why then do Christians take communion, celebrate what Christ accomplished on the cross? to acknowledge his finished work and to be able again and again repeatedly to recognize that his death, that sacrifice that he provided, made it possible for us to be in communion, not only with God, but in communion with one another. So in that early church on the Lord's Day, when people would get together and share in the Lord's Supper, it was merely an acknowledgement. Now, we disagree with the Catholics who say that the body became, or the bread became the literal body, or that the wine that is drank, or the grape juice that is drank becomes the literal blood. Absolutely not. And we don't follow down the road of many Lutherans who won't allow anybody to share in communion except people that belong to their church. They say, unless you've been baptized by our preacher, confirmed by our preacher at our church, you can't, even if you consider yourself to be Christian. We do like the church has done historically. A man or woman embraces Christ, the blood that unites us as a family here on planet Earth, the same blood that makes it possible for us all to go to the same heaven, makes it possible for us to share in communion together. There's no doubt about it. So this is what Paul was having to address some of the practices and customs that people were dealing with in ancient times. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says in verse 18, I'm shocked that there are these divisions among you. 
Certainly plenty of them. I don't know if you realize it, but there are more than 40,000 denominations in this world. More than 40,000. And Paul says, I am astonished that there's this kind of division. But he says in verse 19, there has to be heresy among us so that the truth of God would be manifested. Now, what is a heresy? A heresy is simply a choice that a man or woman makes, and that choice may or may not be in accordance with the word and the will of God. Why is it called a heresy? Because it usually produces a schism or separates people from one another. Communing with God and communion is supposed to bring people into unity along the basic truths. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived without sin, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was taken down from the cross, literally buried genuinely and then raised up from the dead. Then he ascended to heaven. A man or woman finds that they believe that they're a brother or sister of mine in the kingdom of God. So Paul says when we come together, it is to share in the Lord's Supper. Now, the question then comes, how often should the Lord's Supper be taken? You know, that's always a question people have. There have been a lot of a lot of debates and a lot of civil wars fought in church over when and how often somebody should take communion. Earlier, when we first came out here 20 something years ago and we were establishing the churches, we, we had some people that were saying, I think we ought to take communion every Sunday. And then there were some people saying, I think we ought to just, just do it maybe once a quarter. Then there were other people saying, I think every first Sunday ought to be communion. Then there were some people came from a Methodist background said, I don't think we ought to do it but once a year. I said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll do it every third Sunday. We'll have communion skip two. have communion skip two. have communion skip two. We catch everybody who is working on different shifts and then we still get to partake in it very often. But here's the point. I had one person one time wanted to argue with me and said, I just believe every time we get together and have church, we ought to have communion. I said, well, when do you think we ought to have communion? They said, every time we gather. I said, okay. in those days, we had Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Wednesday night service over in Red Cloud Church. And then, of course, Tuesday night here, Sunday night here, Saturday night here at that time. And so I I said to the person, I said, well, do you think we ought to do it on Sunday morning or Sunday night? They said Sunday morning. That's when you ought to have communion. I said, well, I thought you said we ought to have it every time we gather. So shouldn't we have it Sunday morning, Sunday night? Tuesday night, Wednesday night. So well, I don't think that was the intention of the early church. I said, I, I don't believe anyone in the New Testament ever gave us a prescription as far as how many times a month we had to have it. But Paul made it very plain as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, not as often as you happen to gather, but as often as you eat the bread, drink the cup. You show the Lord's death till he comes. Now, Obviously, there were people that were having communion in their homes. They didn't have rented facilities in ancient times. They certainly didn't have the kinds of star studded cathedrals that you find today. 
But very simply, in a home, people would gather together on the Lord's Day, having come from a variety of different directions. After the singing of songs and the teaching of the word, then there would be a wonderful opportunity for people to have food and also for people to share in communion. And Paul is concerned that there are some people that have and there are others who have not. He's concerned that there are some who are able to eat and there are others who are not able to eat. Well, think about the fact if they would have done this on the basis of natural food, not just communion. Your wealthy would have brought all the food. The poor wouldn't have had anything to bring. And since the poor didn't have anything to bring, the poor would not have been able to eat. Paul finds all of this to be somewhat strange. He thinks this certainly doesn't engender unity. It produces more strife and division. So he makes it very plain in verse 21. He said, everyone that takes before the other his own supper. You've got one that's hungry and another is drunken. And he asks the question, what? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God? Do you so despise your brothers and sisters that you want to shame them because they don't have food? There's some people wouldn't care. You know, 180 years ago in this nation, 200 years ago, you go over to the New England states. Might even happened out here, but you certainly could find churches where you had to pay pew rent. That means when you went into the church, if you wanted your family to have a place to sit, then you had to pay dues in the church in order for your family to have a place to sit down. Of course, we, we think of that now just absolutely crazy. But you go to, to go to Maine, go to Delaware, go in some of those old churches, and you see that some of them still have the little hooks on the tops of the pews where they used to have the... It's almost like uh, dividers up between all the different families. And the preacher, they put way up on a perch so that he could stand up there tall and look down on all the little birds that were there. And the people sat in between and they couldn't see their neighbors on either side. And People went to church like that from colonial days right on up into part of the 19th century in certain denominations. Well, if you didn't have money to pay pew rent, what did you do? You stood in the back or you stood in the balcony. Well, I'm sure there were plenty of people that stood in the back and wished they had the kind of money that the people on the ground floor had. Paul said, do you despise the church of God enough to shame them that do not have? He said, do you think I'm going to praise you on this? Absolutely not. So we shouldn't praise people because of arrogance, pride. Because they try to flaunt this or that. Do you know it doesn't matter what kind of car you drive, whether you have a car or not? You know that? Who cares? You come riding a bicycle or walking. Nobody will care. I remember one time I was telling a story in, uh, in Kenya. And I was telling the folks about when Tiff and I first got married and, and uh, didn't have the best vehicles going up and down the road. And, and all of that, and explaining to them we didn't have this and didn't have that. And, and, and so I was just trying to illustrate to them how God can help you even when you're poor. 
And so when I when I made the statement about the, the kind of vehicle we were driving during those early years, then there was kind of a, a chuckle that was there in the congregation. So afterwards, I asked my bishop friend, I said, why did those people laugh when I was telling them about how poor we were early on? And he said, well, well they laughed because you were talking about poverty and how poor you were owning a car. Some of these folks have walked 10 miles one way to come to church. See, poverty is relative. Poverty is different in different places where you go. The poor people that we have here in America living under a bridge are wealthier than poor people that I preach to in different places around the world. Because most of the poor people that I have run up to the car when we're out in California somewhere and they're trying to wipe the windshield, you follow them. They got two or three dogs tied up to a post somewhere. Some of them even have an apartment somewhere. And I don't know that I've run into a homeless person that didn't have some kind of a cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. Paul says, should I praise you in this? said, I've received of the Lord what I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. The night in which our Savior was betrayed, it was a very difficult night for him. Somebody close to him, someone to whom he had given power to heal the sick, to cast out devils. A man that had been entrusted to handle the financial business of the disciples. He led a motley crew towards our Savior, and then he kissed Jesus on the cheek and told the folks, this is the one. They went after our Savior. One trial after another, Jesus had to endure. The priests mocked him. The Sanhedrin and the elders mocked him. Pilate was indifferent towards Jesus' problem. They shipped him off to Herod. Herod brought his soldiers in. They bowed their knee after they put different garments on our Savior. They took a rod and beat him over his head, and then they spat upon him one by one, one soldier after another. And then they said, get him out of here since he won't do a miracle, and sent him right back to Pilate. And Pilate, being such uh, an unstable character, he said, look, man, I can set you free. These folks around here want you dead. Now, what do you say about all of this? The Bible makes it very plain. Jesus didn't have much to say. He simply marched to Calvary, kissed that cross, and died for you and for me. That's what he did. Yeah. But he told those disciples, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. They had no idea how badly broken that body would be. They had no idea how he would be bludgeoned. They couldn't conceive of how his back would be ripped with that cat of nine tails. No idea on this earth what it would be like to see nails go into the hands of somebody and then to take two feet and put them on top of each other and have a nail that's long enough so that it would go through both the feet and into the wood and to be the soldier that's the one with the mallet that's driving it in. They couldn't have, they couldn't even imagine such, such a fate for our Savior. Jesus told each one of them, even Judas, take, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you think they understood that cup? As they partook in that Jewish 
Passover without really understanding the symbolism of it all, that what was in that cup typified that blood, that blood that was shed for you, that blood that was shed for me, that blood that still is so potent, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, that even after 2,000 years, the worst wretch can be saved and the best man can be saved. They didn't have any idea. Not at all. However, Jesus did let Paul know through revelation. Verse 27, we ought not be anything like Judas and eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily. We'll be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Scripture said the devil entered into Judas and Judas went to those Jewish elders said, I hear you've been looking for some inroads to get toward Christ. And I can tell you right now, I'm your man. I count the money. I can give you access. They counted out a few pieces of silver, put it in the man's hand. Put it in the hands of a man that once used those hands to cast out devils. Heal the sick. Put them in the hands of a man that once used those hands to bless little kids. To embrace other people who were broken. That man turned and deceived the disciples and betrayed our Lord because the disciples were so deceived that even when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, all of them started saying, is it I? Is it I? Is it going to be me? Who is it going to be? Even Judas said, master, is it me? And the Lord said, the one that's putting his hand into that dish at the same time as I'm doing, that's the guilty one. Can you imagine going to church every day with somebody like Judas and never even knowing that while he's attending service and saying prayers and handling the money that he's slowly but surely backsliding away from God? I can tell you right now as a pastor, I've seen people backslide in church. I've seen people lift their hands and sing songs to God and the whole time their heart is moving further and further away from God. They're growing colder and colder as they go to church. It can happen to anybody. If you don't guard your heart, the Bible says out of that heart comes the issues of life. I've seen people sit in church, bicker and fight and elders have to get involved and try to provide some kind of mediation because people are ready to go to fisticuffs with each other. Backsliding, sitting in church. That's what Judas did. He saw the revival. He saw the move of God. He saw lives affected. He was there when Jesus came walking on the water in the middle of the night in their storm. He was a part of it when Jesus sent the disciples down there to the Sea of Galilee and they caught that first fish, stuck their hands right inside the fish's mouth and inside the the fish there was a coin. He knew about all of this. But just knowing stories about God and just hearing about God, that doesn't make a person a Christian. That won't keep a person saved. A lot of folks grow up in a Christian house, walk away from God. There are multitudes of colleges where the kids, as soon as they get away from the house, they run right out there into the arms and the embrace of the world and turn their backs on God. I met many of people in the Marine Corps who were sons of deacons and sons of preachers and lived lives that I could never even have imagined somebody would want to live. Yes, yeah, somebody became a Judas and betrayed Christ. 
Paul says in verse 28 here, let a man examine himself. He's talking about a self-check. Study your heart. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're actually in the faith. Do you have a pure heart as you sit there listening to me? Where is your relationship with God? Are you here today because you love God? Are you here today because you were brought? Are you here today because you have a genuine relationship with the king? And if I fell over dead or your neighbor fell over dead or your parents fell over dead, would you still be able to serve God? Would you continue to go on with God? You need to have the kind of faith that's not a leaning faith. So what's a leaning faith? A leaning faith is a faith where you remove the pillar that you've been leaning on, then you lose your faith. I recall a story where a pastor hadn't seen one of his, his uh, parishioners for a while, so he sent one of the deacons around there to check on these folks. I mean, it was a good family. They'd come to church, and you'd see that husband. He'd come walking in there with his wife, had a big old huge Bible. They'd sit right down in the front of the church, had several kids. The preacher said that at least once every six weeks, Six weeks, he was at their at their table having a meal with them. He said, and you could see that father. He is a commanding presence in that home. He'd lead that family. Then that dad died. Man owned a big car dealership. Within six months, car dealership had been lost. A couple of years later, the family had gone towards the four winds and everybody had turned away from God. So there was a husband and wife came to church all the time. And that preacher sent his deacons out there to check on this man. They got there and they said, Pastor, when we found him, he was dead drunk in the front seat of the car with his forehead leaned on the steering wheel. Said we had to shake him to wake him up and we said to him, Pastor, send us out here to check on you. We want to know how are you doing? What's been going on? We've missed you. Everybody's asking about you. And through those beer-soaked eyes, he looked up into the eyes of those men and said to them, My wife drugged me to church week after week. Now she's dead. Died with cancer. Where was God? See, here was a man who had faith that was leaning on his wife. You remove the wife, no more relationship with God. Scripture says, let a man examine himself to see whether or not he's in the faith. It said, let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, but let it, let it be preceded by a personal examination because the one that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What do you think happened to Judas? Here he was taking communion with the Savior. How did he die? Felt so bad, so guilty. He tried to go back to those elders with that money that he had. He threw it at them and said, I'm so sorry I did what I did. Man was overcome with condemnation and personal grief. They said, we don't want your money. It's the rewards of iniquity. We cannot put it back into the Jewish treasury. So you go and do whatever you want to do. What did he do? So overcome, 
clouds of despair had had descended upon him to the point he did not even see an exit sign. And so hopeless was his situation, the man went out and hung himself. You know how many attempted suicides we've had to deal with during this COVID? Do you realize just up the road in Saline County, my wife and I've been up there ministering for the last eight years or so, I think longer than that now, probably 12 going up there. But every six months in that county, somebody commits suicide. If it's not a high schooler, it's an adult. Imagine somebody so depressed, they walk into the house and just sit down in a chair and set the house on fire and don't even get up and leave because of the pain. Just sit right there in the middle of it. I can't tell you the stories. I've been involved with the stories that I've heard. One time somebody wanted to strangle themselves, playing the choking game, got the belt around their neck, had it strung over the top of the banister there in the house. Fortunately, reached the child before the child finally died. Ultimately, was rescued and everything. But they went to go get the parents to let mama know what's going on. Let daddy know what's going on. Where do you find them at? Down at the local tavern. Knocked out, drunk, stretched out on the pool table. Folks, I'm telling you. There's some bad things taking place in this world today without God. But as you can see with Judas, you can know who God is. Still, if you don't guard that heart, you'll be going in the wrong direction. Here's what the text says in verse 30. For this cause, many are weak, sickly among you, and many sleep or are dead. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe that is the reason some people are infirmed and ill because of how they live. I didn't write this. Folks, I'm telling this was in here when I got up this morning. I didn't put this in here. That, that there are people in this world that have passed away because of a lack of discernment of the Lord's body. You don't typically know. I don't typically know. But I guarantee you when we get to heaven, that knowledge will be there. We'll meet somebody who said, I could have lived a little longer had I done what was right. But then I'll conclude with verse 31 where Paul says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But I'll add verse 32. But when we're judged, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God does not want any of his children to be lost. And just like a good mom and dad chastens a child, the scripture talks about it yielding the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I'm trying to think, who was it? The psychologist, Mr. Spock, that said that uh, parents ought not spank their children. See, my mom and dad never got that letter. They never got that. No, no. My, my mom and dad put the kind of beatings on me and my older brothers that would today have been labeled child abuse. And then if the social workers and all of them would have came to the house. I can tell you what my dad would have did. He would abuse them. I don't have any doubt at all. I, I, I tried one time when I was about six or seven, you know, because you start learning all these numbers. You have to memorize your telephone number. You go to school, you learn the 911 and all of that. And, and one time my mom 
had made me mad. So I said, now, look, I'll call 911. And, and my mom, she remember, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. And so my, my mom, she, she made it very plain. You can call anybody you want. But on that door there, there are steel bars and they've got to get through those door, those bars in order to get at you. And she said, if they ever get through that door, I can promise you by then there won't be much of you left. That's what she told me. Yeah. So we never called. We never, we never, we never called 911. We just, we just figured it's just best to obey and to just love on mom whenever she tells us to do something. We definitely didn't want to get dad involved with it, you know. So, yeah, let, let mom handle it. Okay, so as a Christian then, God by his Holy Spirit, he brings conviction to us to let us know what you said was wrong. Even if what you said was right, you may have said it in the wrong way. See, your actions, your deeds were not in accordance with scripture. So the Lord says, repent. And so when we get ready for communion now, we search our hearts. We think about how we've lived. We think about one another. Are we at odds with anybody in the room? Are we at odds with anybody in our family? And then we make it right with the king so that when we share in communion, we have an opportunity to do it the right way. That's the plan of God. So Randy and uh, John, you guys want to get us ready with communion. Mr. Will, you'll probably need to find a song.